for those that uh, don't know me, I'm Murray Louise Ayres, Director General of the National Library. And um, I'd like to welcome you to this, which is our first fellowship lecture for 2019. Only our first, not our last, so strap in for the others. Um, and I'd like to acknowledge this place of learning and scholarship um, is built on thousands of years of knowledge building and sharing by the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, the traditional owners of the land on which we are now privileged to do our work. I'm really delighted to introduce Professor of Editing Afrobin in the Digital Age, a major project funded over four years by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, UK Research and Innovation. Um, and I think I'm correct, it's about £750,000 worth of funding, although none of that is really always <laughs> cash, is it? You know? um, so it's quite a large project and involves a, a team of people. And the project aims to bring together the most comprehensive view possible of the works of Afro Ben, an astonishing 17th century woman, in a truly international way, uh, with Ben editions hunted down in all sorts of nooks and crannies. And we're delighted that we've been able to support the Antipodean part of this research journey, with Elaine spending her time here at the library communing with our collections. And Elaine's just going to, said she's going to tell me what we've got, which is great. Um, but also visiting those in the, in the vicinity in Australia and New Zealand. Now, Elaine has spent much of her professional life communing with those who lived in the 17th and very early 18th centuries. Poets, midwives, and those writing practical works uh, in an age where knowledge could be much more readily shared. And, and I think the, I guess, the similarities between the digital work that you're trying to do now so that you can share knowledge more readily, it's, it's redolent of what was going on in the 17th century. But her sensibilities are also decidedly modern, and I'll know that you will enjoy hearing about her research and the ways in which Ben is being brought into the digital age. So, Elaine, over to you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'd like first to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional uh, custodians of this land and to their elders, past and present. And, and most especially, I'd like to thank them for Mount Ainsley, where I've spent every Sunday morning since I, since I arrived, and where I believe it's the case, I've been told it's the case, um, that Mount Ainsley is traditionally associated with women's business. And the idea that women's business is what goes on in the place where I have taken my own women's business, uh, thinking about the woman writer I'm going to be talking to you about, seems to me, insofar that I understand this at all, singularly appropriate. Uh, before I proceed to the uh, um, content uh, or Ben part of what I'm saying, I also really need to uh, read a list of thanks. And I'm sorry that this is reading a list uh, but, of course, uh, the people with whom I have met and who have actively helped and supported me um, over the uh, now nine weeks, I have a week to, co to go, that I've been here. So, Mary Louise Ayres herself, um, Kevin Bradley, Martin Woods, Andrew Sargent, Damien Cole, Margaret Dent, uh, Erica Mordek, 
Elizabeth Robinson, Narelle Marlowe, Patricia Reynolds, Janula Burns, Amelia McKenzie, Margaret Bolton, Elizabeth Bailey, and the people who are down here as the LG1 crew. And you know who you are, and you smile at me, and that makes a big difference. Um, but that isn't why any of you came here today. You, asked, you, you came so that I could talk about Afro-Ben. And you have, I hope, a piece of paper with some photographs on it. I apologize for the quality of most of those photographs. In effect, what I've given you is my personal notebook, because when I'm working in a library, I take photographs of things for my own reference. They really weren't made uh, to go up at this size, but nonetheless, I thought you might like to see pictures of some of the things that are in the library. And also, a toy uh, called Abdelaza, and I shall come to the toy shortly. Uh, but fundamentally, I'll be working, uh, talking in relation to the piece of paper you've got that have got, uh, it's got photographs in it that will sort of guide you through what I'm doing. So, some of you will know perfectly well uh, what the key associations are of the period that Afro Ben was alive um, in Britain. Uh, so, she was born in 1640 and she died in 1689. So that's the period of the English Civil Wars, of Roundheads and Cavaliers, um, of the restoration of the monarchy, uh, after which what we have, a, a major issue, is the problem of libertinism, uh, which I'm, I will say a little bit more about in due course. Uh, we have a poet laureate, John Dryden, uh, who many of you will know something about, um, and, and also increasing tension and anxiety again about what the monarch is up to. Um, that the monarch is taking too much power into his hands again. We had a period of civil war and nine years of glorious freedom as a republic um, before the restoration of the monarchy. Um, and right towards the end of Afro Ben's life, um, the death of Charles II, his replacement by the Catholic James II, and three years later, what is known as the Glorious Revolution, which is to say, James ran away. And uh, some Protestants were invited to be our monarchs in his place. So that's the period that Ben is alive. A lot goes on. Um, it's very, to me, fascinating. And I will dip back and forth towards some of that as I talk about the books that are here in this library. Um, to some extent, uh, what was said in the publicity for this talk, which I provided, so it's my fault, uh, certainly what you'll find if you do any reading at all about Afro Ben is that you'll be told that she's the, prof the first professional woman writer in English. It's not exactly true, and I've given you a couple of names on your outline. Um, there is an almanac maker, uh, Sarah Ginner, who made almanacs for about six years, I think they sold quite well. Um, but on the outline, you can see I've said to beware of, uh, uh, of the woman's almanac, uh, because that isn't hers. It's published under her name, uh, but it isn't hers. And it's a, it's a, a, mock, um, a mock almanac, a satire on the, on the how dare a woman think she can write a book 
uh, that gives people information about what they might expect to happen this year and what the public forces are that will make things happen. H how dare she do that? So Sarah Ginner made, writing, uh, made a living as an almanac writer, but not for very long, and Hannah Woolley, who made a living as a cookery book writer for about 15 years. And again, warnings on your outline, um, books of hers, uh, that her name was also used for books that were not by her because she had made her, uh, her, her name for that. All of these things, even though you don't have paper copies of them here uh, at the National Library, what you do have is um, subscription to the most extraordinary database, Early English Books Online, where you can read all of these things in their original uh, versions. You can see their title pages, what they look like, and, and, and so on. And indeed, you also have... Um, given that the library's been here for as long as it has and has, has had fine collections for as, well as, it, as long as it has, uh, uh, micro, microfiche and microform versions uh, of these things, but not paper copies of them. Um, so Ben herself, within that context, nonetheless, she is, if you accept um, that neither uh, Sarah Dinner nor... Hannah Woolley made it as a professional writer for very long. Afriben is, uh, could reasonably be called the first. Uh, she made a career for 20 years uh, um, in the professional theatre to start with. She was a very successful uh, and very prolific playwright in the 1670s, early 1680s, and, and, turned, her, uh, and turned to a series of other sorts of writings. Um, many of which you have copies of here and which I, I'm going to talk about. She was very well networked. Um, Dryden, for instance, the Poet Laureate, invited her to contribute to his um, Ovid's Epistles uh, translations. Um, she wrote a prologue for a play by the Earl of Rochester, which you have an original copy of here in this library. And many of the key intellectual figures of the day, writers of the day, were people whom she mixed with, wrote for, they wrote for her. So she was by no means what one might think uh, the first professional woman writer would be. She, I'm not, and again, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. Um, before she was a professional writer, she was a spy. And her spying letters uh, still exist in our national archives in London. Um, they're letters that she wrote home to England in the mid-1660s when she was spying for Charles II over there. And if any of you happens to be in London in the summer of 2020, do please come to the National Archives in London uh, to see the exhibition of her spying letters uh, that uh, my uh, team have organised with, with our <laughs> national, li uh, national archives. Um, but her first play, um, after she had been a spy, had come back to England in debt, and she disappears from the public record for a couple of years. We know nothing about where she was or what she was doing. Then in 1670, her first play appears on the public stage, is an immediate success, and is followed by probably as many as 20 plays. So the second piece of paper, so not your toy... We're getting to the toy. Your second piece of paper, I'm afraid because I'm quite old now, mine is twice the size of yours, sorry about that, um, gives you a sense of what it is that I'm at least notionally up to and of what's here 
in your library. So you can see that I've highlighted in gold uh, uh, books where the first edition is owned somewhere in Australia. Um, and quite a lot of these things are owned here. So this is the map of the edition. Um, you can see uh, a number of plays uh, that are here. You can see she's a playwright. That first column is the tranche of her plays that will be published next year, um, which is why I have spent all my waking hours in the library since I got here. Um, then in the next column, you can see that there are more plays, and there's also prose fiction, including translated fiction. Um, then in the third column, there's her poetry. Quite a lot of her poetry is here in the National, Archive, in the National Library, and I'm, I shall come back to that. Um, there is there also, in that third column, something that you don't have copies of that I've been able to discover, at least. Her three-volume scandal fiction, Love Letters Between a Nobleman and His Sister. But since I am only aware of two copies in the world of its second volume and one copy in the world of its first, it's not so remarkable <laughs> that those are, uh, are not here. And then finally, you can see in the, in the final column, there are yet more plays and there are also non-fiction translations. So she was prolific, she was varied, she was successful in all of these fields. And as I say, the gold highlighting tells you uh, what's here in Australia. Um, what our edition is doing is making it available, her writings, for a modern audience. So all of these texts have introductions, they have annotation that explains things, um, and they also uh, include, which is where the toy is going to come in, uh, an exercise that is to do with finding out what the difference is between what was printed and what should have been printed, uh, shall we say. So a great deal of travelling to, to, to libraries uh, in mainland Europe, in the USA, and now here. Um, we're only interested in our edition for, um, in, in texts by, that have authority in the sense that they were either published in Ben's lifetime, and therefore you know, she had a hand in what they said, or they were not published at all in her lifetime, but there is a, a fairly early posthumous edition. So we're, we're looking at all of those things. We're not looking at later editions of her texts uh, because those simply have got further and further away from the author. I can say some more about that if you're interested. Um, there are almost no manuscripts. So whereas with many uh, important writers of this period and earlier, there are at least some manuscripts where you can go and see what is the difference or what is the continuity between what appears in print and what the author wrote, perhaps even in their own hand. We have the manuscript of one poem and her spying letters. Um, and so when I, when I talk about what's here in Australia, these highlighted texts are texts which are first editions. They are authoritative. They are texts that were published in the 1670s in the 1680s, um, in the early 1690s. These are very rare and very precious, and I am very grateful that, uh, that they're here and are being uh, looked after here. 
Um, so, but as I started to say, I'm trying to work out what the difference is between, one of the things I need to work out is what is the difference between what um, might have been in the manuscript that went to the printer and what the printer actually produced. Um, and this is a major, uh, th th this, is, this is where the toy is going to come in and I'm going to share with a moment. My outline tells me there are two other things I'm meant to say first, so I'm going to say those first. Why, why come to Australia? It's a long way, as most of you know, if you've been to the part of the world that I normally live in, it's a long way. Um, and what my note says um, is that I, really I came for two reasons. Um, the one is that I think that people from the Northern Hemisphere should get out more. Um, it's good for them. Um, the second thing is, I think, to, to my mind, it's important that uh, Australians who are interested in the writings of this period from Britain should know where there are original copies here, that you don't actually have to go to the other side of the world to see these or only see them digitally, that they're here. And so when the edition comes out, it will list where we've been and where we've found things. I also had a suspicion that if I came here, I would find some things that were magical, and I have. And I'm going to be telling you about those uh, in a moment. But first, um, we need to think a bit about um, what you have here. Um, the histories and novels. This is, um, you can see, uh, they said to me, do that. Oh, yeah, see? So 1696, if you were paying attention, you know she died in 89. So this is seven years posthumous. It's a very important book. It's a, it's a rare book, so it's great that it's here. Um, it's important most of all because it is part of, and there's a photograph of the other one on your outline, I haven't put, uh, of the younger brother, which there's also a copy of same year, so two works of Afro Ben coming out in 1696. Both of them have biographies in them that purport to tell us about who she was. Um, the biographies are an enormous problem and they've caused more than 300 years of grief because they clearly, once you know Ben's work, are written by people who know nothing about her um, other than what they have read in her fiction and in her plays. And so they tell you things that, are, that they say are true of her that are not necessarily true of her at all. They're things that are true of various of her characters. So she has characters who are Catholics, and so people write biographies, even today, telling you that Afro Ben was a Catholic. It's quite unlikely when we look into her, her background. Um, she, has she, she writes a poem uh, to, um, in the voice of a woman who is annoyed and frustrated with her lover. And so, clearly, Afro Ben was annoyed and frustrated with her lover. And I could go on, but I would, I would bore myself quite quickly. I think it's a, a major problem to this day in the way that women's writing tends to be viewed and received. As, it's as if women are not sufficiently creative or imaginative to produce imaginary worlds. And that therefore, if you read a woman's imaginary world, all it will tell you is something about her 
and, and her biography. Um, when this edition is finished, I'm intending to work on a new biography of Afroben and uh, hope that uh, part of what I'm doing here and also uh, what, I, what else I have been doing over these several years will, will help me with this. Um, but the problem of, um, of, of this book that you have and uh, The Younger Brother, which I shall come back to in a little while, is, is significant. Um, how did this book come to be here, or The Younger Brother come to be here? Quite a lot of the books that are here in the National Library that are by Ben are in a collection that, was, uh, that the library acquired from uh, David Nichol Smith, who's a very, very important early 20th century um, editor and scholar. And he was quite determined that those books should come here uh, to the National Library. And I've been so lucky as to be allowed to look at the acquisition file and seen the extent to which um, uh, the Prime Minister was involved. <laughs> um, uh, uh, people were sent to, to Nicholas Smith's funeral as correspondence with his family. Oh, dear. I've just done what you should never do in the modern world, which is I've put water on electrics. Well, we'll see, won't we? <laughs> I can talk without electrics if need be. Um, but David Nichol Smith ensured that um, his, his uh, and the library worked very hard, and your government worked very hard to get his collection here. Um, and so although the histories and novels isn't in, in his collection, uh, the younger brother is, along with um, something which... Uh, this book, Miscellany Poems, you have two copies of this. It's published in 1692. Um, this is the copy that's in David Nichol Smith's collection. And it, like the, um, the other two I've just been talking about, the two from 1696, the prefatory matter, the introduction, the collection, was all done by a man called Charles Gildon. So Charles Gilden in 1692 puts this book together, which claims to have some poems in it by Ben, new poems that no one's ever seen before, um, just as those other two things are things that he brings out. And this copy, which is in the Nicholas Smith collection, has on its cover this quite extraordinary image. And I would love one of you to tell me that you've seen this before and you know where it's from. <laughs> and similarly, you can see that it's, the title page is signed by David Griffiths. And I'm really quite excited about uh, David at Griffiths. That's really quite an early hand there, um, having been an early owner of this text, uh, because manifestly his name is Welsh, and I'm Welsh, and therefore um, I'm hoping that what I'll find as I go on and work on this some more um, is that this may, may give me a lead. Who, who were the at Griffiths? And who is the owner of this logo? So that I might find through their family history, through their records, through libraries or archives that have records of them, something that will lead me back to Ben. Who was she? Um, what, was she what was she really like? How did she come to be a spy? Because we don't know why she was chosen as a spy. Um, so so this, this book excites me. You have two copies of it. The other one is less exciting insofar that it has no signatures on it, uh, but is otherwise 
uh, entirely interesting. So the, amongst the stories that are told about Afro-Ben, uh, not in this book because there's no story here, it's four years later that Gildan starts telling his stories about Ben, are uh, that she went to Suriname and that um, she saw the slave rebellion that this text, which she most certainly did write, Arunico, or The Royal Slave, is about. Now, it is certainly the case that Afro-Ben's narrator was present for the slave up, uh, uprising, um, that the story's about, but whether she was there um, is another question altogether, but Gildan tells us um, that she was. Um, so, just in seeing um, this and, and, and seeing this really very beautiful old binding, you might begin to think, okay, I, I can see a logic as to why a person would come halfway around the world to see a signature. Uh, but there's more to it than that, and this is when we get to your toy. So, um, if you do feel free to open your toy, as long as you put it back together in the same order that you have it in. Otherwise, you won't understand what I'm about to say. So, what your toy is, is um, an Abdelazer, which is the name of the play that it's from, is meant to be on the front, if you've managed to put it back together the right way around. The play Abdelazer, when it was printed in 1677, would have been printed, would, would have consisted of one of these, which you can see is labelled B at the bottom of it, and a series of other sheets of paper folded like this. They're actually twice the size of this, but I didn't think it was right to make a toy that was quite as big as that. So a book would have consisted of a series of very large sheets of paper, which if, um, if you were making what's called a quarto, which is where, as you guess from the name really, every sheet of paper is made into four leaves, or eight pages, um, what you'd do is you would have enough sheets of paper folded like this to con uh, contain the whole play. So that would probably be about eight sheets of paper, maybe ten maybe 12 different plays, different lengths. They may have introductions and so on and so forth. But the convention always is that the first page, normally, always is an exaggeration, normally the first page um, is on the B gathering. And before the B gathering, there's an A gathering that has all the other stuff. So in the case of a play, it's probably the list of characters, it's the title page, it's um, perhaps... Um, a dedicatory epistle or whatever. Anything that's, that's before the play starts. And then the play itself starts on page one. Um, now, if you open your toy, you start to see the really quite extraordinary thing about how um, they made um, texts in this time. And it's helped if you see this. So this is, and there's a little, a very tiny image of this on your handout. Um, because here, these tiny, tiny things here are tiny, tiny pieces of metal. And each piece of metal has got, um, standing out on it, um, uh, a surface that will produce an A or an E or a, a punctuation mark. And what the 
compositor is doing, what the printer is doing, is picking up tiny, tiny pieces of metal and putting them in turn into his composing stick to make a line of type. And the line of type then goes onto a big metal frame, which, as this toy shows you, has got next to page one, page eight, and then upside down, pages four and five next to each other. And then on the other side of the page, the compositor, using all these tiny little bits of metal type, makes these other things, these other pages in this sequence. Now, if you're doing that, even if you've had a seven-year apprenticeship, there's a fairly good chance that you'll make mistakes. <laughs> and therefore, what, what happened was quite literally stop-press correction. So the printer would, we think usually, generally, they would print what's called the inner form first. So on a quarto gathering, that's the side that you can see you've got page numbers on, but nothing else. Yeah? And there would really be words there, of course. Um, so the, first, the printer would print all of the copies, let's say 500 copies of that, and they would be hung up to dry. And once they were dry, the printer would turn the piece of paper over, the sheets over, and print these other four pages. And whilst they were printing, whilst the press was running, um, somebody would be stood to one side and proofreading uh, an early copy that's come off the, off the press and looking for errors. And if they find errors, they quite literally stop the press, um, if they think they're important errors, and the compositor gets out his various metal tools and pulls out one of those tiny bits of metal and replaces it or turns it the other way up if it's upside down or adds a word if it's, um, if it's missing. But because paper in that period was very expensive, paper was more expensive than labour, if you found that you had printed something that had got errors on, you didn't throw away the erroneous versions. You just bound them into the books with the others and assumed that nobody would notice. Um, and, and therefore, if you're working on a book that's made in this period, there's precious little point looking at just one copy because you don't know whether, with, as you get to each of these gatherings, as they're called, you don't know whether you've got the corrected version or the uncorrected version. And um, I'm sure that uh, the library will be very glad to, to, to know that, so this is Abdelaza, and, and this is the first page of Abdelaza. Now, anyone who doesn't go to a library to read real books from this period would be working with what's known as EBO, Early English Books Online. This is the fantastic electronic database that this library subscribes to. So you can, when you're in this library, you can go to EBO, and you'll see this play opening with a song which reads, Love in Fantastic Triumph Sat, whilst bleeding hearts about him flowed. This is the copy in this library, which opens, Love in Fantastic Triumph Sat, whilst bleeding hearts around him flowed. So around, not about. And that's why on your toy you can see about and around with a slash between them. You can see uh, fresh pains 
It says in your copy, fresh pays, it says in the Evo copy. And at that point, you start to think, hmm, I don't think you create fresh pays. And obviously, the Evo copy that everybody knows, because it's the one that's easily available, has got printer's errors in it. Um, whereas the NLA copy is splendidly corrected and correct. And if you look at the, then you open up your toy, you can see where there are other errors. And there are tiny, tiny photographs of these on your um, handout. So you can see that on page four, the Ebo copy has B-U-E when the proper word is but. And um, that's what your, your copy has here. And if you turn it up the other way, you can see that where the Ebo copy has a phrase is flu to, which is manifestly wrong, the NLA copy has is fled to, which is the corrected version. So on this side, on this side, this form, this B outer form, what the NLA copy has is the corrected form. Now, it's possible that Ben herself was in the printing house, spotted the error, got the press stopped. So we're quite certain with some of the corrections that we found in some of her texts that she was there because the corrections were things like the printer had missed a whole line out and you'd, you'd need the author there to work out how to fix that without it being obvious um, that some, some material had been lost. Um, we don't know whether she was here for this, this correction. She may well have been, because this song, that's its first stanza, um, is one of her most famous songs. She collects it herself later in her own poems upon several occasions. It's collected in various songbooks of the time. It's endlessly reprinted. So it's, a, it's an important text. She might have been there uh, to, to correct it, um, and, and she might not. Um, before I... I Move. want to come uh, this distance to see books. Um, I just thought it, uh, you'd like to know a little bit more about Abdelazer, since it's here in your library. It's a very extraordinary play. It's a play that's about questions of race and ethnicity. Um, this is a, uh, an ongoing interest right the way through Ben's career. So you remember the, um, her collection, that, that collection, the posthumous collection of her histories and novels that you have here. And I said it has a runico in it. It's about a slave rebellion. So both of these texts are um, very clear examples of how through her career, um, how, how interested she was uh, in those large social questions about how people live together, what their prejudices are, how things might change. And, and Abdelazer has a, a really impassioned uh, black man who talks about his experience um, uh, of racism, as, of course, does Arunico uh, in, uh, his, in the history of the slave rebellion. Um, and although I, I, I cannot take uh, any credit for this, and in fact, you should take the credit because it tells you something about your, your, your people, um, both of those texts, both Abdelazer and, uh, and the, the fiction, the late fiction, are being edited by Australian editors. <laughs> so I think it's entirely appropriate, both at this library, in this multinational country, 
has copies of these texts and that it's Australians um, who are editing them. Um, but that, so as I say, this is one example of why I need to see lots of copies. I need to find out where the printer's errors might be. This one is relatively easy to spot. Sometimes you have to go quite some distance before you find the other page on the form where you think, oh, that's definitely wrong. That can't possibly be right. And then you work back what, what is the correct uh, version. Just as in this case, you know, it, it is possible bleeding hearts about him flowed, bleeding hearts around him flowed, in itself about around, you could say, well, it could be one, could be t'other. It's only when you get to pays and pains that you know, oh, one of those is definitely the wrong one. That's, uh, that, that isn't what's meant to be said. Um, but there are other kinds of reasons to, to go and see lots of copies. Um, and that's, those are mostly to do with, with my, uh, a general category I've put on your piece of paper, which is readers' responses. Um, so, this is a bit of a tease, really. Um, oh, no, that's, that's not that. That's not that. Oh, yes. So, those are the examples. So, if anyone knows what that mark on the page is, um, they're not allowed to say. Uh, <laughs> so, those who don't know, what's this mark on the page here? Um, the answer is fascinating for someone who spends their time with old books. Um, it's a candle burn. So this is, and if you, if you had the real book in front of you, and you could do, because it's just upstairs, um, you can, you'd see that you can see through that um, onto the next page where there is some brown, but if you turn back the other way, turn the page back the other way, there's no brown on the other side. And what it's a sign of is that moment that we all know where you cannot bear to stop reading until you get to the end of this page or this chapter or this incident. And uh, you can see here, that there's, um, ah, idiot. Um, there's discussion going on about um, death. Yeah? Is he dead? Sir, you rave. Did I do? She's dead, they say. How came she dead? Of course this person is not going to put the play down. Uh, and, and, and therefore, sadly... It gets burnt. Um, so readers' responses can be as, 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 shall we say, undefinable as that, that you can see some evidence that at least a reader has got excited or, of course, distracted at this point. Um, there are also readers', readers responses of, um, of other kinds. Um, so this is this library's copy of the debauchee. And over here, you can see that someone, again, this is quite an early hand. This is a, a, a 17th or possibly early 18th century hand, but for the moment, let's pretend it's from 1677. It could be. First owner, first reader, who is reading this play and realises that the, this person who's saying, no more, Mr. Careless, tis sufficient, manifestly isn't him, careless himself, which is what the printer printed as the speech prefix, but in fact is Savile, that the character called Savile speaks like this, this is the voice of Savile. And the, um, the, the reader has gone in and corrected it in his copy. No, that's Savile speaking. This to me is very interesting because I've seen a lot of copies of this play. This is probably the 
14th, 15th copy I've seen. Nobody has ever corrected it before. So this is interesting to me because I'm thinking, hmm, so was this copy owned by someone either who had seen the play at the theatre or who knew something about the play, the playwright, sufficiently to correct it? And then the, the epilogue to the play, which often the epilogue or a prologue would be written by um, a friend of the playwright rather than the playwright themselves. It's published as being the epilogue, as written by Mr. E.R., and you can see that this person has written in the name Ravenscroft, which is almost certainly who it's by. So I'm thinking, so does the owner of this copy know that Ravenscroft wrote the, the epilogue? Um, that looks to me, it's difficult to see, because uh, to, to tell, because of course the person is imitating print, so less easy to identify a hand, hand you know, somebody's handwriting style than that is, but it could be the ink is similar, could be the same person. So I don't have an answer, but I've got a question, which is, might I find out more about this play uh, and, and therefore about its author? I say it's author rather than Ben at this moment because this is one of the texts that's in the edition that is quite possibly not by her. Um, but at the time, it was thought, many people thought it was hers, since various people have said they think it's hers. Um, and so I just wanted to, to uh, mention as I'm going, and again, there are various things I could say about this more if you were interested. Amongst the ways that we're trying to work out with things that may or may not be Ben's, whether they're really hers, is we're using uh, digital analyses, looking at word frequencies, for instance, word pairs, word sequences. And all of this is also being run from Australia because the place in the world to do that kind of computer-aided uh, investigation of text and of authorship is in the University of Newcastle. So if you looked at your list of uh, uh, participants, you can see that uh, in there is Hugh Craig on our editorial board and it is Hugh who has guided our work on this play. Um, it's possible that Ben contributed to a scene or two of it. It's basically a play by, by Richard Broom that somebody has updated and almost anyone could have done. The play is about a young man who wants to be made an heir uh, and who he, his attempts to make himself an heir. The way that the play deals with that plot is part of what makes me sceptical that it's actually Ben's play. Because that... That the problem of the young man who wants to persuade an older, wealthy man to make him his heir um, is, a, is a problem that Ben um, comes back to repeatedly um, in her plays. So the city heiress, which so far we've only seen for its candle burn, for instance, is a play with exactly that plot. Um, young man uh, wants to be made an heir... Um, he also gets up to quite a lot of other things, and I'm going to show you that in a moment. But in The City Heiress, there isn't just the plot of the young man. The play is also about the manipulation of elections. So uh, people who are trying, getting other people drunk to get their, their votes, for instance. Um, and it's a play about what in the period would have been called perhaps rough wooing. 
the idea that you can get a woman to accept you if you're just a bit forceful uh, as a man. And what the city heiress does is it shows rough wooing, rough wooing which, which is as close to rape as you're going to get on the restoration stage, which is pretty close. So Ben will take a plot and she will complicate a plot in two directions. The one is something to do with, uh, with sexuality and the way that sexuality is thought about and, and valued in this period of libertine uh, beliefs and uh, the, assu the assumption, a bit like the 1960s, that if people just had more sex, the world would be a better place. Um, but she also will complicate it through political questions, through questions of, of, of allegiance and, and how the world is run. So I, I think it's really quite unlikely, as a, um, if you like, merely a literary point of view, that this play is hers, although people have often associated it with her. Similarly, the, the play that I was talking about a little while ago, The Younger Brother, one of those 1696 plays, that also has a plot of a young man trying to get an older rich man to make him his heir. And what that play does, as well as that, is that it is fascinated by the relationships between men, about men feeling torn between their friendship and their commitment to their male friends and their, their male allies, and the emotions that a man feels when he's in love. And again, this is a, a, a recurring um, question and interest of Ben's, how men relate to one another, how men's relationships with one another have um, an impact on their marriage. So that's what Ben would do with the plot, or what she does do in those two instances, where you have copies here, with that kind of plot. And the debauchee doesn't do anything as interesting or as complicated as that. Now, I know I've got about minus one minute, so what I'm going to do now is quite quick. Um, you can see the next point on your outline simply says to you, politics, Ben and politics. She is fascinated by, completely obsessed and engaged with the question of what's going on in national politics. It's there in her works in all sorts of ways. Um, it's there in her works in, in ways that are very interesting to those of us who are interested in her. Because from the beginning, she signs up to the idea that the king is the king, that God put him here, and we should obey him. And that's in a culture where those same arguments about kings being kingly are used to argue for men's authority over women, are used to argue for questions of uh, superiority of one class over another, of one race after another. And what you find in her works endlessly is interrogation of that, or a, a problem with it. How can she manage to continue to be on the side of kingship and yet have all of these other ideas and explorations about other hierarchies that she questions, that she, she complicates? And for me, that's one of the things that makes her writing so interesting, is the fact that she constantly re revisits and, 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 and tries to find ways of making sense of those things. Um, at the end of, her, of the handout, I've, I've given you some Ben words, and these are examples of, as I say, perhaps a woman's view. The first is from that play that I so love that you have a copy of, The City Heiress. Um, and this is where the, 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 the man who is trying to be made an heir, trying to get himself made an heir, and also is in, in the midst of relationships with three women, he's trying to get an heiress to marry him, because of course in that period, 
once a woman was married, everything she brought to the marriage no longer belonged to her. It all belonged to her husband. So he's trying to get a rich young virgin to marry him. He's trying to get a widow, a wealthy young widow, into bed. And he's trying to get rid of a woman he's already seduced. And this speech that I've given you here is the moment at which Wilding, this uh, libertine, turns up in the bedroom of the widow. And he says to her, keep your word, madam. And her response is, my word. And have I promised then to be a whore? A whore? Oh, let me think of that. A man's convenience, his leisure hours, his bed of ease to loll and tumble at at idle times, the slave the hackney of his lawless lust, a loathed extinguisher of filthy flames made use of and thrown by. Oh, infamous. It's a very extraordinary speech, I think, to be written by a woman and in the voice of a woman um, in 1682. Um, and there's a lot more of that kind in this play. This is a play, you know, as I say, you have a copy upstairs, you really should go and, re go, go, go and read it. Um, the one against that is a poem that she writes to one of these important men that she's networked with, where she's thanking him for translating into English a text that has only until now been available in Latin. And I've pulled out for you the bit where she says, till now, I cursed my sex and education. And she goes on to say, now what you've done is you've given us, by which she clearly means women, access to what we have been refused access to before. Um, the third one is one that I happen to be f especially fond of. Um, it's a terrible thing in that it's a poem about the seventh child in a row in a family to die. So it's an epitaph on the tombstone of a child, the first of seven that died before. This poem is on the wall of a church in Berkshire, and they know the family story of the family uh, that this is part of. They didn't know that the poem was by Afro Ben until I wrote to them uh, about it. And so again, I'm hoping that this church wall and the story of this family might lead me back to Ben, because um, how did, why did they ask her to write this poem that's on the church wall and that she published um, in this collection of hers? Um, so, I'm not going to talk any more about the last one because I was meant to have stopped five minutes ago. So there's all this stuff going on, all this conflict, all this thinking, all this passion, and then quite suddenly she died. 1689. She's 49 years old. Yeah, for some of us that was a while ago. Um, so I'm extremely glad that Australian copies of these books will be part of what we are bringing into print and re reporting to the world about. And uh, I want again to thank you all uh, for having these books here and looking after them and uh, to the library itself for looking after me. Thank you. Um, I was just thinking as somebody who's spent 
few years of my life closely reading poetry and writing about it, I'm thinking about the poor PhD student who probably spent part of a chapter trying to figure out what from whom fresh pays he did create <laughs> and trying to make sense of it because that's what you do. Yes, you you do. try to kind of think, what's the meaning? So uh, my heart sank at that point in time. <laughs> oh, look, that's a marvellous look at, um, I, I guess, n not just Ben herself, and the treasures that are in our collection and the unexpected treasures of a candle burn or somebody who's filling in, trying to look as if they've printed text when it's actually not, that appears uh, in a work, um, that we've, we've sort of uh, understood a bit about that intense scholarly process today. Um, Elaine's project for me is um, yet another demonstration of the huge array of research that our collections can support. And while I would have to say it's been a long time since a Prime Minister of Australia has concerned him or herself with securing an important collection <laughs> or, in fact, the future of our collections, um, these collections have been lovingly built up over decades by generations of librarians and um, never knowing that there was going to be an Elaine coming along to look at them in this particular way. And this is what makes working here such a joy, I have to say, day in and day out. Um, so it's just marvellous to hear um, research that you might not expect being done at the library uh, being done here, or in fact being done in Australia. You haven't been to New Zealand yeah, you'll be going to New Zealand, so, so we will want to report back, actually, to find <laughs> out um, what did you find there, you know, a, a, a spot of candle grease or something that might give you another bit of evidence. Um, but look, we do have time for uh, a few questions from uh, anybody in the audience who, who might have questions. Uh, we've got one right up the back here, and I'm sure that Elaine would say, ask questions even if you don't consider yourself to be an expert on 17th century writing. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. Elaine, thank you very much for a fascinating insight into Afro-Ben, about whom I knew virtually nothing when I walked into the room, despite mm. having studied English at ANU in a past life. Um, her work is so fresh and engaging and it seems her themes are so relevant. Are any of her plays performed? Uh, I can only imagine they go down rather well in the Globe in London. <laughs> um, the, two of her plays went on being performed into the middle of the 18th century, uh, The Rover and The Emperor of the Moon. The Rover is fairly regularly revived. It's been revived here. It's been revived various times. It was recently done at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford in, in Britain. Um, but nothing like enough. And if any of you have friends in the theatre world, I would love to sell them the idea of putting on a Ben play because they are really fantastic. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Can, can I, just whilst that's coming, can I say there are two things that I was meant to have said. I meant, meant to, to myself, really. Firstly, you have a play that you didn't know you had. So that's on, the, um, on, on this piece of paper that shows that you have The Young King. You have the first edition of The Young King. It's a fine play. It's about a woman uh, brought up to be uh, Marshall. 
and a man brought up to uh, be gentle and feminine. And you have a copy of this play. You didn't know you had it because it starts with the bee gathering. But it is the first edition, and it's here. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was um, the, the collection of plays that you have, which is wonderful, um, really could do with some TLC. And if, if anybody has a little money to spare, I'm sure the library would be more than happy <laughs> to accept a donation to, uh, to mend a book or two. Yeah? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. That was fabulous. Um, this is a very simple question. Who was the Australian Prime Minister that facilitated the acquisition of the David Nichols Smith collection? Oh, I've oh, read the files it white. Yeah. Yes, it's um, it, Menzies. Yes. Yes. And, yeah. and in fact, um, those of us who are familiar with our acquisition files know that the relationship between um, Sir Harold White okay. and Sir Robert Menzies was extraordinarily close. They were both there for a long time. They lived within a stove. You can see this relationship developing around quite a few collections that, that come in. Yes. That, that makes start, sense. You know, the lessons are headed, my dear Prime Minister, mm. my dear Harold. <laughs> it's very charming to my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the two of them also facilitated the acquisition of our 13th century Magna Carta yes, copy, that's right. which... Yeah. The library said was theirs, but the parliament now has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you as well. Um, could you say a little bit more about her career as a spy? <laughs> well, <laughs> what we have is the letters hope she was sent to Antwerp to meet up with a man uh, whom she presumably had known before, to try and persuade him to come home. He's one of the people who'd been uh, banished from the country because he was suspected to not be on the right side because the British were, uh, were at war with, um, with the Dutch at the time. And the letters home consist mostly of her saying, you haven't paid me yet, and <laughs> life here is getting rather difficult. <laughs> um, and there's not very much spying information in the letters, except that she does say, you know, the Dutch have got this plan. They're going to sail up the Medway and set fire to the British fleet. And uh, the, the people at home in England, and you can see the little sort of annotations from the Lord Chancellor's office saying, you know, city woman. And, of course, uh, the, the next month the Dutch did sail up the Medway and did set fire uh, to the British fleet. They still didn't pay her. And she came home and was at least threatened with and perhaps went into uh, debtor's prison. Because there was, as you may know, in those days, the wonderful system that um, if you were, for instance, a debtor, you would go to prison where you had to pay for your keep. Um, deeply rational. Um, and we don't know how she got out. And, but the fact that all of her, everything she wrote um, of any length, um, is concerned with the importance of money. Now, if she were a 20th century person, she, you would say she's a Marxist because she's always thinking about the financial, the economic basis out of which people's ideas and possibilities come. Um, may well be from the experience of being, you know, going away for the king to be a spy and finding that you could end up in prison. But, you know, do come to London and... <laughs> it's not far, you know, I'm living proof. <laughs> Uh, one there, and um, did you want to ask a question to Yellow 
shirt? No? Okay. One there and then after that one here. So, Surf, go ahead over there. Just looking up at the play, it strikes me it's a mixture of blank verse and prose. What yes. did she write in? Tell me. She, she mixed in exactly that way, yeah. It's, it's very interesting that um, you get situations where, for instance, a character switches into verse because they're doing love talk um, and where the other character doesn't really believe that what's being said is true. They think you're saying that and you mean something else and they respond in prose. Uh, and then when they get convinced, they'll go across the verse, this sort of thing. It, it's a, it's, I think she does it more systematically than many of her contemporary playwrights. But it is something that, that is not uncharacteristic of restoration drama, this sort of shifting between verse and prose. How good was her blank verse? Very good. She's a very fine poet, yeah. Uh, her Poems Upon Several Occasions, which is her own collection of verse, um, is, is, has fine verse in it, yeah. So, which makes her fun to read. It's not just a question of reading her for the sake of, um, um, she's saying things that you might find interesting. She says it well. I, n I noted on the, on the first um, frontispiece that she's uh, referred to as Mrs. Ben. Yeah. And I wondered if there was anything interesting to say about her marriage, her husband, and possibly her husband's view of her as the first professional woman writer of, in, yeah. of English. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be nice. Um, so th I should have said that she was born Afra Johnson. So we know she's born in a village just outside Canterbury. And we know that her father is a barber, or barber surgeon, perhaps. And her mother is a gentlewoman. And her mother's, uh, and her parents' first child is born six months after their marriage. So we can make our own deductions. And then Afra is the third child of that marriage. So we know she wasn't born Ben. We know she's called Ben by the time she becomes a spy, because that's what the official papers are in. And we know, you know, Ben is probably German, yeah? Um, I'm not saying I won't find her, because I want to, I would like to do so, but he simply doesn't feature. Even at the point that she goes away as a spy, her brother goes with her, but there's no mention of her husband. So people speculate perhaps he died um, in the plague in 65, because, you know, before she went off in 66. Perhaps he deserted her. Um, I, I think he must have existed, because it's a time of such gossip and nastiness um, that if, if he didn't exist, you'd expect there would have been satirical poems written saying, oh, and she invented a husband who didn't exist. But uh, we literally know nothing about him, at least yet. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. Um, just out of curiosity, how did you come across Afrobin? Um, I, I was a 1970s feminist. And in my last year as an undergraduate... I one day made two terrible discoveries at the same moment. Um, because I was, I was sitting in bed looking around my books and thinking, I know, in my finals exams, I'll only write about women. I won't say that that's what I'm going to do, but I, that's what I'll do. And I made simultaneously two terrible discoveries. The first was that I hadn't read any women, <laughs> um, other than George Eliot and the Brontes and Jane, Jane Austen. 
And the second was that I hadn't realised I hadn't read any women. Because the way that English was taught at universities back in those days, um, you were thinking about women's stuff. If you read Hard, you know, Thomas Hardy's Women or something like that. So I decided, okay, well, I would work on women then. And I ended up by accident in the 17th century. There's a longer story that I can tell you over a, uh, over a drink in a minute, if need be, if you're interested. But I, I ended up by accident in the 17th century. And I wrote my PhD on women writers who were in print between 1649 and 1688. And most of those are Quakers and Baptists and women involved in the political upheavals that I started off by reminding you of. Uh, and I always thought that I, wouldn't, I would never work on Afroban. I thought she was so good that other people would see to her. And 40 years on, <laughs> yeah. And I'm completely in love with her. I mean, for the last five years, almost the only thing I've done is read and read and read, you know, over and over again, read her works. And the more I read her, the better I realise she is, which is why I said, yeah, she can write blank verse, no question. Thank you very much for your talk. It was very enjoyable, and I'm sure it's uh, we've learned a lot about this this amazing writer. I was wondering if there has been a memoir or anything like that written about her that might be available. And when the books are printed, will they come to Australia? Do you know? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Certainly, our, our Australian editors will have copies of them. But uh, yeah, um, in terms of uh, if you wanted to read more about her, the best biography that exists at the moment is by Janet Todd, T-O-D-D. Um, now, I don't, I don't myself agree with some of Janet's guesses, if you like, because of course we're always we're guessing. You know, she says these things, and might she be? talking about experience, or might this be an imaginary world? But it's a, it's a good, it's a fine and very readable biography. So I don't know whether you've got it here, I haven't looked, but I'm sure you could get hold of that. Yeah, welcome. And we've got one here in the middle. <laughs> Climb over somebody. Yes, it just means everybody can hear if you wait for the microphone. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. I enjoyed it uh, enormously. Uh, I was hoping that you might be able to uh, clarify something for me. Uh, it's to do with Abdul Lazer and Oranuku. Mm. And um, I'd had the impression that um, uh, Abdul Lazer uh, was based on the novel Oranoko, but from what you've said this evening, I gather that Abdul Lazer was a play that was written earlier on, whereas Oranoko, I, I gather, was uh, written, uh, was published just the year before she died. Yes. But I've also read that um, uh, it was um, in 1695 that Thomas Southern adapted Oranoko for the stage. Yes, exactly, and, exactly. And, but so there's really no connection, or is the storyline much the same in both the play and the novel? And I also understand that Abdul Lazer um, was also known as the Moor's Revenge. Is that...? Yes, that's right. And, of course, Henry Purcell wrote the incidental music. He did, and it's amazing. I've, I've heard it performed live, and it's extraordinary music, yes. So there, there were a series of, of um, questions and observations there. You're quite right... Yes, uh, Thomas Southern adopt, uh, adapted Ben's narrative 
of Arunico, and it was a very successful play in 1695, 1696, and thereafter. And I think it's reasonable to speculate that when The Younger Brother and the Histories and Novels that you own here came out, they, they were riding that tide, that Ben had become um, a hot name in, in 1696. They are quite different texts. Arunico opened in Africa um, in, a, in, in a, an community where people are sold into slavery and other people are captured into slavery. And it then goes to Suriname where there's a slave uprising. Yes. So that's the story of that. Whereas Abdelaza is a tragedy um, that tells the story of... Um, of murder and incest and adultery and all sorts of other things. So nothing really to do with slaves? No, not in that case, no. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again. Why did she go to Suriname? Well, if she did. <laughs> if she did. If she did. Um, the, the, spec the, the, the story goes to Suriname, Arunico, and people have said that because the narrator speaks quite convincingly about being there, that she must have been there. Um, and the speculation then is that she went as a young woman because the narrator of the story is a young woman whose father has been sent there and she's, she's gone with him. He's gone as uh, deputy, uh, deputy um, governor of Suriname. Well, if she went at all, no, no, if she went at all, exactly. So uh, I hope that in 10 years' time, I should write to the library and say, please, could I come back and, and uh, talk in the library about what I found out about what really went on? Because at the moment, I've got a lot of questions. I'm hoping, because really from about 1680 onwards, when she published work, because you could get money um, if somebody accepted that you could dedicate it to them, they'd give you some cash for saying nice things about them in print. Um, I'm hoping that if I, if I can go to the archives and the family histories of those families to whom she dedicated things. Anyone who's looked at those records, the name of Afroben would probably not mean anything to them. And so there could be materials that I would find if I went and looked. Um, but I, I, part of why I'm sceptical that she went to Suriname is that um, the descriptions in the story are quite extraordinarily rich descriptions of, um, of vegetation and of animals and so on. And only a few years earlier, she wrote new English poems for Aesop's fables. And some of the creatures she describes so vividly in Arunico also are creatures that feature in the Aesop's fables. And I'd think, well, if she'd actually seen these creatures, surely the descriptions would be more like what you get in Arunico. So my hunch is that she was well-networked, that she had read somebody else's manuscript account of being there, that she'd read things about it, and, you know, her imagination did the rest, if you like. But I don't... I could be completely wrong. And I used to say, oh, you know, this is said about her, that's said about her, give me some evidence. And then, of course, I found the evidence, and I found my scepticism was wrong. So. Mm. <laughs> 
Um, Elaine and everybody will be pleased to know that we do hold the secret life of Afrobin in the library. Oh, excellent. Uh, by <laughs> so I anybody who's interested in that, get a library card, come into the building and feel free to read in the reading room. <laughs> I'm delighted. I think apart from anything else, what we have seen with Elaine is apart from great dedication to this project, and I love the thought that after five years of reading and reading and reading, it's getting better and better. Mm. I love the optimism that you come all the way to Australia and you're going to find something that's going to give you some little clue, yeah. and the optimism that in 10 years' time, we might know something about Afrobin because we <laughs> don't know a lot uh, at the moment, and uh, and I suppose that's a you know again a, a core feature of our fellowship um, program is that we we hope that we understand the process of research, which is about little little bits of things coming together over long periods of time, and uh, planting seeds that can uh, flower and bloom. Much, much later. Um, so I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking Elaine for her fabulous talk tonight. <laughs> and please join us for more conversation afterwards um, outside the theatre too. So.